Thank you, Amy, for that message in music. It certainly was a terrific thought. Uh, that is the essence of our great uh, faith and confidence, what Jesus Christ did for us in dying on the cross. Certainly, this is a blessed time of year, and we are uh, grateful to be reminded of that great truth. As you can see, we have some handouts this morning as we work our way through Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a kind of a complicated section, and so I thought it would be much easier for you to follow if you had the uh, outline in front of you. As we begin this morning, uh, I have a news flash for you. Uh, you're probably going to be shocked when I, I say this, so prepare yourself. Um, life's not fair. Life's not fair. Have, have you reached that conclusion yet? Uh, do you have some experiences uh, that you can reflect upon and you just say to yourself, that isn't fair, I haven't been treated fairly, you've seen injustice, you've seen wrong uh, you've seen uh, good go unrewarded. You've seen people that have done bad things get ahead. Uh, boy, that is one of the greatest frustrations of life. And that is a key component to the book of Ecclesiastes. So I have, what is it that makes life so frustrating and unrewarding? It is often that doing good seems to be unrewarded and doing evil goes unpunished. As I say, everybody has an example from that. Uh, everyone has been passed over at some point. You feel like you've worked hard. You feel like you have done what is necessary to do. You expect to get a promotion and then all of a sudden somebody from the outside comes in and is promoted over you. You may feel like uh, you have been slighted at work. You may think that uh, on a, a baseball team, basketball team, whatever that you deserve to start and somebody else is starting in your stead. You run into favoritism, you run into nepotism, you run into all kinds of things in this world that are simply unfair. And it's easy to throw up your hands in those situations and say to yourself, what's the point? Have you ever done that? Have you ever said to yourself, maybe you haven't done it outwardly, but you say to yourself, I quit. I quit. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm fed up. This is wrong. This isn't right. This is, and, and, and you get frustrated. And you say to yourself, what has all my hard work gotten me? What is the benefit from the sacrifice that I made? How am I rewarded? One of the common ways in which that is manifested is as Christians, we may ask ourselves, when going through difficulties, hardships, unpleasant circumstances, we may say, why has this happened to me? We don't think that we ought to experience these hardships in our lives because we have been faithful. Perhaps we've been people of prayer. Perhaps we've been regular attenders to the Word of God. Maybe we share our faith openly and clearly and we say to ourselves, for what? What benefit has there been in all of this? That thought is a, again, key component to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's repeated time and time again 
each time with a little different, different nuance, but it's the same basic thought. For example, Ecclesiastes 7.15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. He says, I've seen that futility. I've seen a person who lived a very righteous life, and yet they seem to die prematurely. Then I look at this other person who has lived a very wicked life, and they live to a grand old age. Or I've seen a, a person who has lived a very godly life, and they know so much pain and, and physical problems and difficulty. They seem to have one struggle, one illness after another. And then here's this very unrighteous person who doesn't even seem to be afflicted with a headache. Or a toothache. Nothing seems to go wrong for them. Ecclesiastes 8.14 There is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Now, it takes it up a step further. It gets even worse. Not only does it seem like we are unrewarded, but it seems like the position is, has been uh, juxtaposed. It seems like living righteously, you end up being treated like an unrighteous person. And a person who lives unrighteously is, ends up being treated like a, a righteous person. And so Solomon throws up his, air, his hands and says, Vanity and vanities. All is vanity. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything's meaningless. What's the point? As we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 9.2 It is the same for all. Now in this context, he's talking about the righteous and the wicked. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice, the worshiper of God, and for the one who does not offer sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, and that's a person who takes God's name in vain, so is the one who is afraid to swear. And that one event is they all die. They all die. In the end, everybody dies. So, what's the point in this vain life? What's the point in futility? No matter how you live your life, guess what? You're going to die. Doesn't matter how you lived it. Doesn't matter if you go to church or don't go to church. Doesn't matter if you've done good or haven't done good. You're going to die. Is the conclusion of this passage. So, the theme is, now that I've discouraged you to no end, the theme is, is there any reward for doing good? Is there any benefit? Is there anything to be said for living a godly and holy life? Key verse. Ecclesiastes 3.12 I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. So here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this isn't just absolute hedonism. When it's talking about rejoicing and eating, and it isn't as the world rejoices in the sense that they're rejoicing in eating food for eating food's sake. But here in Ecclesiastes 3.12, the rejoicing is in Doing good as you eat your food and as you 
go about your your life. That there is an ability to rejoice in doing good. So what is that ability to rejoice in doing good? Number one, it is God's gift to see the value in living righteously. It's God's gift to see the value in living righteously. Not everybody sees it. And if you see that this morning, it's because God's done a work in your heart. It's because of God's grace in your life. Because it can easily be missed. First, each person who benefits materially from their labor should see the moral benefit in living righteously. Ecclesiastes 3.13 Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. You should understand by the fact that you have something to eat this morning and you have something to drink that there has been a benefit to your having worked this past week. You got a paycheck. And you've got opportunities that have come to you for working that people who don't work don't have. And then you look and you say, now there starts to come the injustices. And you can talk, tell me about a whole bunch of people that you know that don't work and they're lazy and they this and that. And yet they've got perhaps more than you've got. And you can see the injustices. But the point is this morning that you can look and just acknowledge that there is a benefit to having worked. However, the spiritual insight to see the moral benefit and one's living uh, righteously is a gift of God. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all its labor, it's the gift of God. So that there is a perspective that God gives to his children that look at life differently. They're able to see benefits that other people do not. They're able to ga- grasp a spiritual reality that will become more clear as we work on. Unlike man's work, God's work lasts forever. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Solomon looks at his life and he says it's futile, it's meaningless. But then he looks at God and says, but whatever God does, that lasts forever. That lasts forever. Never ceases. Therefore, Mankind should live in fear of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear Him. Why? Well, now we finally get to the main thrust of the first point. Mankind should live in fear knowing that they must give an account on how they have lived this life. Now we are introduced to what is the unique Christian perspective. That is that there is a day of accountability. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment for having lived righteously or unrighteously. Ecclesiastes 3.15 NAS, that which has been already and that which will be has already been, it's a statement of eternality. For God seeks what has passed by. Ecclesiastes 3.15 in the NIV. Whatever is, has already been, what will be, has been before. And God will call the past into account. Ecclesiastes 3.15 the ESV. 
that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Uh, it's an idiom, and so it's hard to, to translate. Literally, this verse says that the one who is persecuted, God seeks out. And so I think that the NIV encapsulates what is the basic idea here, and that is that God will call the past into account. The ESV uh, tries to pick up on that literalness. God seeks what's been driven away. That's what's been persecuted. The idea here is a, is a uh, precursor to chapter 4. If you, uh, you don't have your Bibles open, but I'll just read it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression. And so it's talking about those that are oppressed. Those that are persecuted. Well, God's going to come along and comfort them. And that's where we get this idea that there is this this judgment that's going to come. There's going to come a reckoning. There's going to come a reckoning in which God, who is from everlasting to everlasting is going to bring to account that which is past. That which is past. For the idea here is that the past is never past with God. It's all a part of His present. It's all part of who He is. You see, we talk about things as being done and over. You know, uh, We talk about water under the bridge. That's the idea that the water continues to flow and once it's under the bridge, you can't get it back. Uh, it's water under the bridge. It's gone. It's, it's happened. Can't get that back. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's past. It's there. It's never going to come and, and infringe on your life. There, there's not going to be any reward or punishment. You can live your life in these isolated areas and never ever have to worry about it surfing, surfacing its ugly head. Well, there's no greater lie than that. What we do matters. Our past is always with, it, with us, and it always will be. And God is going to hold us accountable for what we have done. Nobody can add to that. Nobody can take it away. There's no magic delete button. You know, on a, on a computer, that uh, you know, they, they, when you search the internet and stuff, there's uh, there's a history, keeping track of where you've been. Well, you can go and you can erase your history on a computer, ah, but you can't completely. Erase it. You think you're erasing it, but somebody who's knowledgeable enough can pick that up again. They can find it. You can't erase your history. You can hide it from people. You can think that it's inconsequential. You can think that you're getting away with it. You can think that it's irrelevant. You can think that it doesn't matter. But you can't really erase your history with God. He's able to search it out. He knows it. Nothing is added to it. Nothing is taken away. He preserves an accurate record. So, Solomon's observation. 
when God is out of the picture, where righteousness is to be found, wickedness is there instead. See, here's the, here's the frustration. So, under the sun, notice Ecclesiastes 3.16, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun. I've been saying it week after week. I don't think I can say it enough. There are two phrases in Ecclesiastes which are key. Under the sun and under heaven. Under the sun is life viewed from a secular worldview, a secular perspective, leaving a sovereign God out of the picture. Under the heaven is taking into account a sovereign God, a Christian worldview. So he looks at the non-Christian worldview first. And what does he find? He says, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Solomon finds wickedness in the very place that justice is to be administered. That is, where goodness is to be rewarded and evil is to be punished. That wickedness is manifested instead. That is, that goodness is not rewarded and evil is not punished. Said simply, the court of law. We would expect, if anywhere there's going to be justice, it's going to be in our judicial system. Hence the word judicial. It's to be justice. That's where you go to have rights wronged. That's where you go so that good will prevail and evil will be punished. Well, you don't have to look at the judicial system very long before you can find loads of examples where evil is not punished and where good is not rewarded. Some of the laws in our, in our country are, are really topsy-turvy in, in this area. There are some, some great injustices. You can look at it historically and see them today. Um, a few years ago, I went to uh, Louisiana. And uh, one of the things that we did while we were there was we toured a, a plantation. And, uh, of course, they had a, a large uh, slave force uh, that was at work uh, when the plantation was in its glory days. Of course, uh, there were slaves there. And, and I found it fascinating because they had a, a library there of books you could buy. And uh, one of the books that, that fascinated was Slave Law. And so I, I bought it and, and read the, the book. And uh, it was an eye-opener to me because I'm, I'm not a law student. There were a lot of things I didn't know. Every, every state had its own laws about, about slavery. There wasn't one common law. Every, every state uh, set up its own, own standards. Now, there was some Supreme Court decisions, but beyond that, Every state had its own standards. And in the state of Louisiana, one of the things I found to be absolutely fascinating was that uh, a slave was at one, of the, one, at one and the same time an animal that had no rights and a human being that had rights. And you may look at that and you say, well, why in the world would that be? Well, as far as the slave owner was concerned, he was property. And so the slave owner could do anything he wanted to that slave in Louisiana, in fact, including beating him to death. Because he was his property, and who was to say anything about it? But, when it came to that slave responding to the slave owner, he was a human being. Because then he was going to be accountable. So if the slave would kill the, the uh, 
master, then the slave would be tried as a human being and found guilty of murder and be killed. So he had no rights when it came to his defense, but when it worked against him, he was a human being. Well, when you look at the injustices that have happened, as I say, it's easy to look in the past, but many of those injustices are still going on today. And we realize that the places where we go, whether it be our, our boss, whether it be our superintendent, people in authority, we expect that we're going to receive justice and we don't get it. Even the places where you expect to receive it. Even you find that sometimes the police are corrupt. You find all kinds of things. And you throw up your hands and you say, what is the point? Here's one that's even more shocking. B. Further, Solomon discovers that the one in whom he expects to find righteousness, he discovers wickedness instead. Ecclesiastes 3.16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Now, some commentators take the last part of verse 16 and they say that that is a scribal error because it's not parallel. They assert, in order to make a sense of the parallel, it should read, in the place of wickedness, righteousness is found. So look at Ecclesiastes 3.16. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. They're saying, no, 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 it ought to be that uh, in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of, of uh, wickedness there is righteousness or there is justice. But that wouldn't make any sense because that's not true. And furthermore, that's not what it, what it reads. Um, there are a lot of times people want to answer the problems of Scripture by saying there's an error in Scripture. One thing I have learned over the years, I'm not a great computer expert by any means, but I have learned that when things aren't working right, it isn't the computer that made a mistake. It's me. It's the input. You know, I, so rather than kick the thing and say, you stupid computer, I've got to look at myself and say, now, what did I do wrong here? OK, the problem is with me. As you look at the scriptures and they don't seem to make sense, don't kick the scriptures. But the problem's not with the Bible. The problem's with us and our interpretation. And in this instance, it's not hard to find at all what Solomon is talking about because we see it in a parallel passage. Ecclesiastes 8, 9. And, I, and all this I have seen applied my mind to every deed that is done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Even those who go to public worship practice evil. That's what he's talking about in the place where he expects to find righteousness. He finds evil. He expects that at least the person who is going to worship, at least they're going to act justly, right? At least, at least the person who's who's calling upon God, at least we're going to find that their life is lived like it should, right? Well, look at Ecclesiastes 8.10. So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place. It's referring to the tabernacle. It's referring to the temple. They went in and out of the holy place. They went to worship. But they were wicked. But they were wicked. You know, one of the reasons the world throws up its hands is because of the inconsistency that the world sees in those that make professions of faith. 
they've been cheated by Christians. They've been accused by Christians. We've seen that very odd polarization, even in this past week, when we've seen the Catholic Church uh, install a new pope. And in on the one hand, there is clamor and there is excitement. And at the same time, there is a discussion on the outgoing pope about all of the abuse scandals and, and how they were failed to be handled as they ought, etc., etc. So here you see this dilemma, this contradiction. That in the place where you expect to find virtue, you find unrighteousness. And the people that you expect to behave differently, you find that they behave like everyone else. And you know there are a lot of people who throw up their hands when it comes to worship and they say, well, what's the point? Those people are all hypocrites. Have you heard it? Somebody says, I've been hurt by these people. I haven't been cared for the, by these people as I ought. I haven't been treated fairly as I ought. And they throw up their hands and they say, what's the point? And they give up on worship. They give up on following God. It says, those in the city where the worshiper lives, notice it. Ecclesiastes 8.10. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this. So that the people looked and they knew, ah, that person goes to worship, but they live wickedly. And the guy dies and it's soon forgotten. This too is futility. This too is futility. This too is meaningless. Number two, now Solomon views life from a godly perspective and comes to the conclusion that God is going to make all things right someday. Ecclesiastes 3.17 I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there. So, God will reward the righteous. I said to myself, God will both will judge both the righteous man, meaning that he is going to be rewarded. There is going to be justice that one day is going to be meted out. And if you live a righteous, godly life, seeking to promote God's honor and glory, seeking to do that which is pleasing to him, seeking to live a life of justice, in this life, it may seem meaningless, but there's a time of judgment coming in which that's going to be rewarded. They, God will punish the wicked. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. There will be a comes up in, if you will. There, there's going to be a consequence. It looks like they've gotten away with everything in this life. Ah, uh, but what stays in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happens on earth doesn't stay on earth. It's going to have its 
judgment. God will do this in a future time. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For there is a time for every matter and every deed is there. That's a future time. This life is not the time for God's judgment. That is something that you have to keep in mind or you're soon going to throw up your hands as you look at this world that seems to be just inundated with injustices. For notice, even in John 3.17, of course we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Jesus' Christ coming the first time was not to judge the world. It was not to make things right. It was not to, to make all the wrongs right and, and uh, punish all the wrongs and reward all the goods. It's one of the difficulties that the Pharisees had with Jesus. They were expecting that he would deliver Israel from the Roman oppression. They thought that he was going to be an earthly deliverer. He, they thought that he was going to make everything right. And he didn't. And Jesus says, that's not why I've come. That's not why I've come. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. I didn't come to condemn it. I came to deliver it. I didn't come at this time to evoke justice. I came to demonstrate mercy. I came not to punish. I came to forgive. And this world abounds. In the grace and mercy and long-suffering nature of God. Some see it as that. Some are able to perceive God's goodness. Others see it as a God who is asleep. Or a God who is dead. Or a God who doesn't exist. Why doesn't God do something about this, is the question. There must be no God. Haven't you heard somebody say to you at some point in your life, if God is a God of love, then why is there suffering? Why is there hardship? Why is there war? Why is there famine? Why are there tsunamis? Why are all these things happening if God is a God of love? And... The answer to the word of God is, just wait. Just wait. The time's coming. Evil will be rewarded. Excuse me. Good will be rewarded. Evil will be punished. No more floods. No more devastation. No more hardships. No more difficulties. But this life right now is not the time for God's judgment. Three, Solomon concludes that God's judgment of mankind is inevitable. However, it is coming. And so God brings things into our lives to demonstrate that we, in fact, are powerless over our lives. Ecclesiastes 3.18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, 
God has surely tested them in order that for them to see that they are but beasts. Uh, God wants to show us and brings things into our lives to demonstrate that we are as powerless as brute beasts, as unthinking, unreasonable animals. We have no physical advantage over them. Notice, death is as, as, as inevitable in our lives as it is in the life of the animals. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. We have no more control over how long we're going to live than a gopher does. We like to think that we do, but we don't. We can't control our lives. We can't decide if we're going to get cancer or not. It's not within our realm to determine whether or not we're going to have a heart attack. We are powerless over our lives. Our breath is the gift of God. We are sustained by Him every moment. And when He decides that our time is up, our time is up. Both. Uh, so, uh, Ecclesiastes 9.12, Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net, birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of man are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. And unexpectedly. You feel good today, and all of a sudden you have a diagnosis tomorrow. You're like a fish caught in a net. You are like a bird that's caught in a trap. Unexpectedly. Boom! Life takes this incredible course of events. And the scripture says that God does that so that we would be put in our place. That we would realize that we are not as strong and invincible and as inevitable as we think we are. We're not going to live forever, even though we may act like it. And even though we may think that we have power over our lives, we don't. So both man and beast alike return to the dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to the same place. All came from the dust. All return to the dust. Your body is made up of matter. It's going to disintegrate. It's going to go. It's going to rot. Boy, you know, it gets graphic if you think about it, but it's real. Think of the roadkill on the side of the road. Swarming flies. Smelly, etc., etc., etc. It's deteriorating. It's going to be absorbed once again into the ground. It's going to dissolve. Guess what happens to you if you're allowed to lay by the side of the road? The same thing that happens to that skunk that's been run over. The same flies. The same destruction. The same thing. There is no difference. So, one asks the question. Is there no difference between man and beast after he dies? You see, there's an irony in Ecclesiastes that, that I just find 
so valuable as I, I look at this life. You know, the one thing that our world has gotten right as they think about evolution is they've just come to the conclusion that, that, that man and animal are, are pretty much the same thing. In one sense, that is true. We were taken from dust and we'll return from dust. We have a lot in common with this animal world. A lot in common with this animal world. But is there no distinction? Is there no difference? Is my life no more meaningful than the life of an animal? That has real human rights questions to it. Does my life, is that is, is more precious than animal life? Or is animal life just as precious as my life? And we thought about animal rights and all these things. And, and there's just such a cloud, such an inability to discern about the relationship of man and animal. When you take God out of the picture... If you take God out of the picture, what value does life have for a human being that's different from an animal? Why live morally? Why not just follow animal instincts? Why not just do what you feel like doing? Why not just live your life amorally like an animal does? If you take God out of the picture. And so, Solomon says, Is there no difference between man and beast after man dies? Verse 21. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? The person who rejects God is not certain but is plagued with that question nonetheless. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. So that all mankind wrestles with that. All mankind asks the question, is there something after I die? Do I continue on? Do I come back as another form of another animal? Am I rewarded? Do I move higher up on the chain? Or if I've done bad, do I come back as a mouse or, or as a rat? Or, or what happens after I die and the person who takes God out of the picture doesn't know, but yet feels very uncomfortable because it seems like there ought to be. It seems like there must be something after I die. I just am not buried in God. And gone. There, there's just something that doesn't seem right about that. My death and the death of the gopher, there's got to be some distinction in that. Solomon does know, in fact, when the body is returning to dust, then man's spirit lives on. Some commentators say that, 
that Solomon here wasn't even certain about the resurrection, etc., etc., etc. But again, they're not taking the whole book into context. He's just raising that question. Solomon knows the answer. Solomon does know that in fact when the body is returned to dust, the man's spirit lives on. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then the man of dust, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon affirms. But he's looking at it under the sun in, in chapter 3 and he says, Who knows? Get to chapter 12 and he knows very well. We know very well. Ecclesiastes 12.5 Furthermore, Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along. The caperberry is ineffective, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Man returns to his eternal home. Man returns to God. So, Solomon understands that apart from God, mankind does not take future judgment seriously. Ecclesiastes 3.22 I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Who is going to open his eyes? Who is going to cause him to understand? This person who's under the sun. And is looking at this life. Who is going to get that person to realize that what they do in this life matters? That there is a judgment. That there is a time of reward. There is a time of punishment. Who's going to open their eyes? is where Ecclesiastes 3 ends. How's that going to happen? You see, apart from man, apart from God, man is clueless concerning the meaning of life. Apart from God, who knows what's good for man to do? Ecclesiastes 6.12 For who knows what's good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Again, talking about the life to come. Take God out of the picture. Who's going to answer that question? What kind of authority do we have? What do we know to be true? Apart from God, life is short and meaningless. Ecclesiastes 6.12 For who knows what's good for man during his lifetime, during the few days of his futile life? You live a very short and meaningful life, meaningless life. And who can tell anybody what, what good there is in that? Three, apart from God, mankind is left with a nagging uncertainty as to what happens after a person dies. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Again, Ecclesiastes 6.12, For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? You take God out of the picture, who knows what's going to happen? What are you going to do? Read People magazine and find out what the last person who had a near-death experience thinks? Are you, are you going to uh, ask a, a person to read the tarot cards and tell you what's going to happen next? You're going to look at a crystal ball? Where are you going to go? Who's going to tell you? What's going to happen after you die? Who knows? I hope it's good. I hope I make it. I hope I'm rewarded. I hope it's all right. But who knows? Conclusion. Without God in view, life is meaningless. Vanity of vanity is all vanity. Take God out of the picture. Why bother? Why do any good? Why try to work hard? Why try to get ahead? Somebody else is going to be promoted over you anyway. Life is filled with injustices. Life is filled with, with uh, 
for lack of fairness, what's the point? Without God in view, life does not seem to make any sense. The good go unrewarded, the wicked experience no consequences. There's futility on the earth. There are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And you can all fit your own examples. Without God in view, everyone comes to the same end. That is, they die. It's the same for all. Whether they're a good man or whether they've been a, a, a wicked man, there's going to be a funeral someday. You're going to die. You're going to die. No matter how you live your life, no matter if you only eat vegetables, no matter if you smoke, you drink, you're going to die. So what's the point? Why not smoke and drink? Why not do this? Why not do that? What's the point? You're all going to die. Ecclesiastes is not the message of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. The thought is, be happy in this life knowing that it's not the end. There's more to it. With God in view, the meaning of life is quite clear. Ecclesiastes 12.13 The conclusion then, it's the conclusion of the whole book, and it ought to be the conclusion of every message, when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. <laughs> That's how we all should live. Fear God, keep His commandments. That's how everybody should have... That is what provides the meaning and basis to life. With God in view, life is quite rewarding, for God will bring every act to judgment. Know that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of accountability. And you will stand before God, and you will hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, or you will hear, Depart from me, I never knew you. You have done great wickedness. It matters. It matters. Remember, say to yourself as you look around and see the injustices and don't close your eye to them. Be aware of them, but simply acknowledge now's not the time, but there will be a day of reckoning. Don't lose faith. Don't look at futility of life. Look at God's grace. Look at how powerless we are to control our lives. Realize that we're really no better off than the beasts. We can't determine what's going to come into our lives. We need to accept that at the hand of a sovereign God. But know this, that when we honor Him, that is rewarded. That will be praised. And we're going to have an eternity of bliss for this short but meaningful life. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to live in your sight, to bring you glory, to bring you glory, to realize that the time of judgment has not yet come, but there will be a day of reckoning. Lord, help us to put this all in perspective and see that life is not meaningless but meaningful when lived under the watchful eye of a sovereign God who is going to hold us all account and reward our goodness and punish the wicked. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.